If you will, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17 as we continue our study of the life of David. And you should be familiar with this chapter because this is quite likely the most famous story in the life of David. And it happens in just the second chapter of his life. The most popular story in the life of David is only the second chapter that we read about David. It's his defeat of Goliath. Now here's the thing, the story of David and Goliath is for many of us one of the first stories that we ever learned as kids. It's a popular story because it teaches an enduring lesson about faith, about triumph. Sometimes we overlook or dismiss this story as adults because we associate it with childhood, with those early education opportunities, with VBS. This, for us, a lot of times, is not an adult Bible story. This is a children's Bible story. And if you grew up in the church, it's very easy for you to learn David and Goliath when you're young and forget about studying it when you're older. But the truth is that stories such as this carry a new meaning when you become an adult. And it might just be that the story of David and Goliath is more relevant in your life now as an adult than it was when you were a child. Because now you face mortgage payments. And now you face cholesterol levels. And now you face occupational responsibilities and you face economic hardships. You know, some of us are, are facing real giants in our lives now that we did not face when we were kids. Maybe you're facing the physical battle with a medical condition or the emotional battle with losing a loved one. Maybe there's a financial giant in your life and it's you trying to get out of debt or a relational giant in the form of a struggling marriage or even a mental giant in the form of forgiving yourself or forgiving someone else. There are real giants we begin to face as we enter adulthood, as we continue through adulthood, as we experience adulthood. So there's something we can learn from a shepherd that stood up in the midst of a group of soldiers and said, in effect, the battle belongs to the Lord. This story, the David and Goliath story, may be more relevant the more mature we are. And yet, too often, we relegate it to a children's study. So tonight, we're going to walk through David and Goliath one more time. And hopefully, we'll be reminded of some lessons about facing giants for those of us who are facing giants all the time. And I want to tackle it this way. I want it tonight to be probably more application than I usually do in a class like this, but, but I want you to know this first and foremost. When it comes to facing giants, we must not be intimidated by appearances. This is the very first lesson we learn from the David and Goliath story. So look at with me at 1 Samuel chapter 17, the first seven verses, because after learning that the Philistine army and the Israelite army are encamped against each other uh, in, with battle lines drawn, Here's, what we, here's, here's how the story unfolds. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokal, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokal and 
Ezekah and Ephes Demim, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up the drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. Now that's a lot of detail about Goliath using a lot of language, at least in that translation, that is unfamiliar to us. But what this text is telling us about Goliath is that David had every reason to be intimidated by him. See, David could be intimidated by Goliath's physique. Most of our biblical translations maintain the original Hebrew language in its description of Goliath, so we have to rely on footnotes or study notes to understand what these measurements mean. So let's put this description in our own language. Goliath was around nine feet, nine inches tall. The current tallest man in the world is Sultan Kosin of Turkey, who measures approximately eight feet, three inches tall. The tallest person in recorded secular history, as confirmed by the Guinness world records was Robert Wadlow, who died in 1940. He stood 11 feet, excuse me, 8 feet 11 inches tall. That means Goliath was still 10 inches taller than Robert Wadlow. And if you pay attention, for instance, the world's tallest, current tallest man, he's got some physical limitations. He requires some uh, assistance with his walking. Goliath doesn't appear to be a man whose height, whose extraordinary height, was limiting him physically. But that he was able to be functional. He was able to be active. He was able to fight. So Goliath's stature was imposing. It provided a natural offensive and defensive advantage. His size likely resulted in a longer reach and greater strength and difficulty for smaller opponents to to strike devastating blows to his weak points, such as his head, because they couldn't reach it. So Goliath's physique was intimidating, but Goliath's experience was intimidating as well. We're introduced to Goliath with the title of champion. The Hebrew term from which this title is derived literally means the man in between. And it's probably a reference to one who enters into single combat with two armies. It's something I'll talk about a little bit more, but it's called representative fighting. And it's a one-on-one combat scenario. If you have a champion, he's the guy you send out to represent your army in a one-on-one contest every time. 
And the fact that he's title champion means he hasn't lost yet. The fact that he's alive means he hasn't lost yet. But this title of champion was an indicator that the Philistines had confidence in him. They did not fear going to battle because they had Goliath to go to battle for them. This means that Goliath was a skilled and experienced warrior. He's been trained to be a soldier and to be a victor. He is their champion. Goliath's experience was intimidating, but his equipment was intimidating as well. Actually, this is what we have the most detail about, is the equipment that he's going into battle with. He's arrayed in the best armor and equipped with multiple weapons. Here's what we know. He was covered in metal armor, essentially from his head to his toes. He wore a helmet that protected his head and a coat of mail that protected his torso and essentially bronze knee and shin guards, as we would call them. They're called greaves from a military standpoint. This body armor weighed at a minimum, at a minimum, his body armor weighed 126 pounds. That's based solely on the weight of his 5,000 shekel coat of mail. For weaponry, he carried a bronze javelin on his back, as well as a spear whose iron point weighed 15 pounds. Just the tip of the spear was 15 pounds. The term translated javelin may also be a reference to a type of curved sword, which would make more sense since a javelin and a spear are essentially the same thing. And there is mention made of a sword which David would later use to cut off Goliath's head. David uses in, in chapter 17, verse 47, verse 51, there's reference to the fact that David took Goliath's sword and chopped Goliath's head off with his own sword. So the term javelin may actually be better understood by us as a sword. In addition to all of this, the armor from head to toe, the sword, the spear, he also has a shield, but he doesn't carry his shield. He has a shield bearer walking in front of him carrying the shield. The point is, Goliath has the most elite weaponry and armor possible. He is well equipped for battle. So Goliath is this imposing figure whose size, whose armor, whose weaponry, whose experience were so much greater than that of any Israelite that they believed him to be invincible. so it is with the giants in our own lives. Whether it's a medical di diagnosis, a, a financial crisis, a, a, the loss of a loved one, those giants are imposing. For us, those giants are intimidating. For us, those giants look invincible. And we often feel and even act defeated before the battle ever begins. And our problem is that we continue to look at our giants through human eyes, and we never see them through God's eyes. Or if I were to say the same thing using some biblical language, we walk by sight rather than by faith. And it's very interesting that the battle between David and Goliath occurs in the chapter immediately following David's anointing. Because if you think back to the anointing of David, 
the one thing that God pointed out to Samuel is don't look at outward appearance. And now we, we're here one chapter later, and it's as if God is saying, do you remember in the last chapter when I told you not to look at outward appearance of a man? Don't look at the outward appearance, not just of David, but of Goliath. Because Goliath had the edge on physical strength, but Goliath didn't have the edge on spiritual strength. And God's whole point in these two chapters is it's not what's on the outside that really matters. So when it comes to facing giants, we must remember, we must remember not to be intimidated by appearances. But we also, when it comes to giants, we must remember that we are not alone. Now look at verses 8 through 11 of 1 Samuel chapter 17. There we're told that Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The tactic that is being suggested by Goliath is what I mentioned earlier. It's called representative fighting. This tactic is uncommon today, but was quite common back then. Instead of both armies fighting each other with all of their soldiers, representative fighting called for one individual from each army to fight one individual from the other army. The army of whoever lost in this one-on-one battle would then surrender to the victor's army. It reduced casualties for the most part, but man, it makes you put a lot of stock in one person. No wonder nobody wanted to volunteer to face Goliath. Because that's a, that's a lot of pressure. The fate of an entire people is riding on that one individual. You would be essentially walking into the battlefield all alone. You would be the sole individual to be praised if you won, but you would be the sole individual held responsible if you lost. You know, under different circumstances, Israel may have agreed to such a tactic. I mean, if Samson were still around, maybe they would um, go for it. But Samson's long gone. And so Goliath seems impossible to be matched up with. And one thing worth noting, if you were skip ahead to verse 16 of 1 Samuel chapter 17, you find out that Goliath didn't issue this challenge once and then leave. His challenge went on for 40 days. Every morning, every evening, he went out there and issued this challenge. For over a month, the Israelite army, the Israelite army is standing on one side of a valley, watching Goliath march out, flaunt his size, his weaponry, 
and challenge them to a one-on-one battle. And there's no one who's willing to take it on. No one willing to accept that offer. You know, the giants in our lives flaunt themselves the same way. They don't just issue a challenge once. They come back again and again and again. One author said, Few things are more persistent and intimidating than our fears and our worries, especially when we face them in our own strength. You ever had a giant in your life that you just thought wouldn't go away? That just kept rearing its ugly head and challenging you time and time again? May we never forget that we are never alone when we face our giants. The most repeated command in all of Scripture, do you know what it is? Anybody want to take a guess? Fear not, or do not be afraid. The most repeated command in all the Bible. And most of the time, when that command is presented, it's followed by a reminder from God of his presence with his people. So, for example, we have Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6, where we're reminded that God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the author of Hebrews goes on to say, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The author of Hebrews, and this is in the context of being content. This is in the context of a financial discussion. And the author of Hebrews is saying, the Lord has told us he will always be with us. So why should we be afraid? We have to remember that when it comes to facing giants, we're never alone. And when it comes to facing giants, here's a third thing we need to remember, that we learn from the life of David, that we must focus on the real enemy. Pick up the reading with me, 1 Samuel chapter 17. We'll, we'll start in verse 20, go through verse 27. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in the charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. 
So David heard Goliath's challenge. And then asked about that reward for the one who kills him. Now look at how David's brother Eliab treated him when he heard him inquiring about that reward. This is verse 28 through 30. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him to toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. Here's what stands out to me. A lot could be said about how David's brother treats him here. Well, what really stands out to me when Eliab acts like this is that this is an opportunity for David to get distracted. When David arrives on the battlefield and is criticized by his eldest brother, it creates a situation in which David's focus could be taken off of Goliath and placed on his brother, placed on their relationship, placed on the family dynamics. But David shows great restraint here. Instead of getting sidetracked, with this other mini-battle, he stays focused on the big battle. He stays focused on the one who is challenging God. Not the one who's just challenging him personally. He kept his focus on the real enemy instead of allowing his brother to become a sideshow enemy. When we talk about our own personal giants, how often does it happen that when we're dealing with some sort of crisis in our lives, whether it's financial or medical or spiritual or relational, whatever it is, how often are we battling some sort of giant, dealing with some sort of crisis, and other little crises try to creep in and steal our attention? Other little battles try to creep up and take our focus off of what really matters. Something happens that creates this little side battle that you really don't want to have to deal with in the moment. Maybe you're facing the giant of medical treatments when all of a sudden family drama rears its ugly head. Maybe you're dealing with the loss of a loved one when a conflict at work comes up. And you're trying to handle matters biblically, spiritually. You're trying to keep your faith intact through crisis when something else is coming along trying to weaken you even more, trying to uh, take your focus off of your spiritual uh, mindedness and keep you from maintaining your faith. I want you to think about James chapter 1, verses 12 through 17 with me for a moment. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift 
And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James is issuing a call for endurance in the face of difficulty. James is saying, remain steadfast. Don't lose your focus. Don't let what crisis or or trial or challenge to your faith you're dealing with cause you to lose your faith. Don't don't let other things creep in and take your focus off of God. Don't, Don't allow your circumstances to negatively impact your faith. This is a call for confidence in God in the face of adversity. This is a call for us to not let our circumstances dictate what we think about God. This is a call to keep our attention on the real enemy. Just a couple of weeks ago, I spent a whole Sunday morning talking about Satan. One of the things we've got to remember about Satan is just how crafty he is. I mean, that's the first adjective ever associated with him in Scripture. He knows what he's doing when he attacks. This is an entity who can disguise himself as an angel of light. This is an entity who has schemes, plural. He doesn't just have one strategy for attacking your faith. He has multiple. And so when you're facing giants, our chief enemy, our main opponent, He knows how to disrupt your faith even more in the midst of those. And that's why in that sermon I called on us not to underestimate Satan, because he is a highly intelligent creature. And so when we're facing off with our giants, we need to understand that that's our chief opponent. The one attacking our faith is our chief opponent. Let's not get sidetracked with other little battles that have no eternal significance. Let's focus on the one thing, our faith, our salvation, our relationship with the Lord when we face off with these battles, because that's the chief thing. And I think David reminds us of that, because he doesn't let his brother pull him into a battle that didn't matter. As we continue on through this events, the events of 1 Samuel chapter 17, we come to verses 31 through 37. And here we find out that when it comes to facing giants, we must recall God's victories. Because when David volunteered to take on Goliath, look at Saul's initial reaction. Verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. David volunteers, and Saul points out all of David's inadequacies. You're too young, you're too inexperienced, you're too under-equipped. But David's not focused on his inadequacies. David is focused on God's victories. Pick up the reading in verse 34. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And where there came a lion, a bear, Or a bear and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his hand. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, 
for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. David recognized that his victories over a lion and a bear were not because of his own ability. David gave credit to God for his ability to defeat those animals in that context. And so he's sitting here looking at Goliath and thinking to himself, not, oh, Goliath is so much bigger than that lion I killed. Not Goliath is so much more equipped than that bear I killed. He's thinking, Goliath is no different than that lion or bear, not because of me or himself, but because God. Because God can defeat Goliath just like he defeated a lion and a bear. He's keeping in mind God's involvement. David's confidence to battle Goliath was based on his God-orchestrated victories over the animals. David knew he could defeat Goliath because God had proven in the past that he would be with David. All David had to do was recall God's history of victory. Saul seems to have forgotten. Saul was a pretty victorious military leader the first half of his kingship because God was with him. Do you remember when Saul lost his favor with God? It was because he went to an altar and made sacrifices that he wasn't authorized to make. Saul was foolish for that. And Saul was punished for that. But there is one thing you have to still acknowledge about Saul. Is that in doing that, he understood that he better not go into battle without God on his side. Now the problem is, he forgot that obeying God is just as important. But he recognized that you don't go to war unless you got God on your side. He wanted, he wanted to ensure that those offerings were made so that God's favor would be on him and his military. Now, he shouldn't have done it, but at least he kept in perspective the importance of having God on his side. And now, here you see the transition. It's David who recognizes that, hey, victory is attributed to God and nobody else. It's David who keeps that in perspective, not Saul. Yes, Saul will say, the Lord be with you, but Saul wasn't confident enough that the Lord would be with him. And wasn't Saul the tallest in all the land? Shouldn't he have been the one facing off with Goliath? I mean, if your whole army is going to depend on one person, it might as well be you. But David's the only one here who keeps God in the proper perspective. And at this point in Israelite history, they should have looked back at the ten plagues they should have looked back at the Red Sea. They should have looked back at the city of Jericho. They should have looked back and said, the Lord's got this. They had enough of a history with God, God's proven victories that they should have been able to look back and, and said to themselves, listen, Goliath is no different than those walls that came down. Goliath is no different than that sea that parted. Goliath is no different than that Pharaoh who caved. Goliath is no different. But they couldn't see that. They couldn't remember the past. 
Look at what Moses said to the Israelites, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 17 through 19. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Before we ever get to Goliath, Moses has informed the Israelites to remember that their God is a giant killer. But the Israelites failed to remember. They, they failed to practice their memory work. And we're no different. Sometimes when giants arise in our lives, we respond like Saul and the Israelites with fear rather than like David with faith. We forget, we forget the past too. See, we should be able to look back to the blessings and the answered prayers and the successes that God has granted us in our lives, and that should squash our own fears about the present. That's the very reason Jesus told us to not be anxious about your life in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. He said we shouldn't be anxious because we can look at the birds and see how God has cared for them. And we can look at the flowers and see how God has cared for them. And we should know that no matter what we face, God's got it. One way or another, we may not understand how, we may not understand when, but we can know He's got it. That's why in that same passage in Matthew chapter 6, after Jesus appealed to the birds and the flowers, he said, are you not of more value than they? Shouldn't that be enough for you to know that God cares about you and will take care of you? Now, honestly, sometimes the way God takes care of us isn't the way we expect, isn't the way we want. But we should never forget that what we know about God in the past should impact the way we face the future, regardless of what that future entails. When it comes to facing giants, we need to do what the Israelites failed to do here. We need to remember God's victories. We need to remember that no matter what, He's got it, because He's bigger than every giant. And if we continue in the story of David, we come to verses 38 through 47, 1 Samuel chapter 17. And here we're going to realize that when it comes to facing giants, we must accept that with God all things are possible. So pick up the reading in verse 38, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, 
He disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. The Israelite army looked at Goliath and immediately thought, I can't. David looked at Goliath and immediately said, I can. And what was the difference? We have to remember that David arrived on the scene from the field. David was apparently too young to be enlisted in the army, like his three eldest brothers. Which means he was probably less than 20 years old at this point in time, because Numbers chapter 1, verse 45 indicates that men over the age of 20 were able to go to war in Israel. So David is not a member of the royal army yet. He has never received any technical military training. And he's too small to wear Saul's armor. So what gave David such confidence to defeat Goliath? Obviously, David's confidence was not in himself. It was in God. Remember, notice what David said again there in verse 45. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. David didn't need anything. David didn't need any weaponry. He wasn't concerned about all that. All he needed was God on his side. Because he understood that all things are possible with God. When we face giants in our lives, we have to remember that too. Because we are not greater than our giants, but God is. We have to remember that God can do anything, even when we think it's impossible. And the Bible shares that sentiment frequently. When Sarah laughed after hearing God tell Abraham that she would bear him a child when he was 100 and she was 90, God responded by saying, Is anything too hard for the Lord? When Jeremiah was in prison during the siege of Jerusalem, God instructed him to purchase his cousin's land. Jeremiah did what God asked, even though it didn't make sense since they were about to become Babylonian captives. And Jeremiah declared in, in chapter 32, verse 17, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And in saying that, Jeremiah acknowledged that God is greater than the impossible. The impossible being him getting that land back one day. After Gabriel announced to Mary that she had been chosen by God to bear his son, Mary asked, 
How will this be since I am a virgin? And Gabriel explained how God would miraculously cause her conception just as he miraculously caused Elizabeth's in old age. Then Gabriel declared, nothing will be impossible with God. And after Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God, his disciples asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus responded by saying, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. See, the Bible is constantly reminding us that nothing is outside the realm of possibility when it comes to God. But sometimes when we face our giants, we draw that conclusion. We go into facing our giants with the defeatist mentality that there's no way God can do this. And you know what? That affects our prayers, doesn't it? That affects our spiritual lives. That, that can affect the way we even engage in relationship with God, whether we even open His Word, whether we come to worship service. Whether we fellowship with believers. If we don't believe all things are possible with God, it takes a toil on our spiritual well-being. See, practically speaking, we often don't believe that all things are possible with God. And what ends up happening is we approach our giants with an I can't mentality. We say things like, I can't do this or I can't do that. And in such circumstances, we're kind of like Moses standing before the burning bush saying, I can't speak. Or we're like Saul, standing in the military camp saying, I can't wait on Samuel. Or we're like Elijah, standing in that cave saying, I can't face Jezebel again. Or we're even like Jonah, standing at the docks, saying, I can't go to Nineveh. The problem with an I can't mentality is that it focuses on the giant rather than on God. It's looking at God through the lens of the giant rather than looking at the giant through the lens of God. And what happens is that we intentionally or unintentionally shrink God. When you have that kind of I can't mentality, when you assume that things are not possible with God, you're putting God in a box that he's too big for. All things are possible with God. And David refused to let God be shrunk. And that's why with confidence he stood before the giant and declared, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. David reminds us that when it comes to facing our giants, we have to remember that all things are possible with God. Now let's read the rest of the story. Verse 48 through 54. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. 
So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. The end of the story is victory. Victory over a giant. I don't know what giants you're facing today. But I know you can have victory over them. David and Goliath has made its way into our popular culture. David and Goliath is such a well-known story that it gets referenced in secular settings. March Madness begins today, technically. Sometimes you'll hear them referred to as a Cinderella team if they weren't supposed to go very far. Sometimes you'll hear them referred to when a small school beats a big school, a low-ranked team beats a high-ranked team. You refer to as David beating Goliath. Because victory is possible when the Lord's on your side. The story of David and Goliath gets relegated to a children's story most of the time, but like I said at the beginning, there are things you and I face as adults that are true giants. And I believe the story of David and Goliath is in the text of Scripture to remind us that giants can be defeated. So let's never stop studying David and Goliath. Don't just keep it there for the kids. There's something in it for you too. Jim? Anybody want to weigh in? I'll, I'll come to it in just a second. Kurt? That's a, Kurt said um, we, we put ourselves down, uh, uh, reference to humility, uh, but we, we hold God up in a in sense. He, he's the reason we're bold. I, I agree with that. Uh, let me, I'm going to try to pull, I'll do it this way. This one's faster. Jim, you, make a, you pose a great question. Uh, I'm going to try to get to a text real quick if I can find it from memory. Your question made me think of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think the reconciling that you're, ta- that you're questioning about is simply... We always recognize where we stand in comparison to God. The Pharisee and tax collector parable comes into play where we always recognize our inferiority. That's where the humility has to come uh, factor in. But the boldness factor comes in because of what God has done for us. I look at Abraham when he um, negotiated with God. I don't think there's a more bold act in conversation with God than Abraham standing there negotiating with him from 50 people down to 10 to save Sodom. God never got offended. God never challenged him. God listened. But every time Abraham made a request to reduce that number, he did it so humbly, so politely, so meekly. But he just, he's petitioning God for something that God is technically in favor of. God is in favor of saving. It's just how far do you push it? So I think in Abraham's story, we find that that balance to some degree. Now, let me let Stan weigh in. As I ponder uh, this question that Jim posed, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, which one do we lean towards? The humility aspect or the boldness aspect? Agreed. I mean, the, uh, that, that ties back to the Pharisee and the tax collector and their prayers. I think we sometimes, or at least my experience has been with people, that they refrain from boldness in an effort to maintain the humility. But the Bible is full of bold approaching of God. And we, we have to find the balance 
because God is okay with us having bold prayers and bold petitions. Um, Jesus may have had the boldest prayer ever when he was in the garden and prayed for this cup to be removed. That's a pretty bold prayer for the Son of God who was sent for that very mission. And so I, don't th- I definitely don't think it's wrong to have bold prayers, but I think we tend to shy away from that kind of approach to God and focus on the, 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 the humility. Cause we, and I think it's sincere. I think we do that because we, 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 we don't feel like we deserve God's answer. But I also think sometimes it's out of fear. We don't want the rejection. We don't want the answer to happen the way we don't want it to. So, don't be afraid to pray bold. Don't be afraid to approach God in confidence, but don't approach Him in pride. The pride will always be shut down. And uh, what Stan was saying earlier was um, also don't approach Him with that double-mindedness, and and you used the word doubt as you were talking about it, Uh, actually the ministers were discussing what does that mean the other day at lunch? What does it mean to uh, uh, pray with doubt, I think is the terminology. And we were, Ben Hogan was the one who was was talking, he was talking about when his mother was in the hospital and, and she was septic and it was a life or death situation. And he had said, you know, when I, when I went out, I went out in the woods by my house and I was praying for my mom. He said, but I had no confidence that my prayer was going to be answered the way I, I was praying, that for, for her uh, to survive this. He said, so was, was I doubting when I prayed? And the conc- as we talked about it, we were like, no. You didn't doubt because you took it to God. By taking it to God, you still believed he could do something about it, even if you didn't necessarily think that was the answer he was going to give. You didn't doubt his ability. You doubted whether or not he would answer it the way you wanted. There's a difference. We pray because we believe God can do. We don't always know that he will do. That's the difference, or a difference at least. Anybody else want to weigh in before we wrap up tonight? Miss Ellis? That's a great example and a great comparison there. All right, with that, we'll wrap up our study for tonight. Join us next week as we continue walking through David's life. Thank you, and have a blessed night.